Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're looking up at the sun, the original source of all energy on Earth. In recent years, solar power has grown by leaps and bounds in the United States, Europe, and Asia, driven largely by falling prices and favorable government policies. California and other states are catching the wave and moving ahead with ambitious goals for solar and other forms of clean power. But the forecast is not all clear. European governments formerly bullish on solar are slashing subsidies, and the World Trade Organization recently slapped Chinese manufacturers with fines for dumping their panels below cost. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the prospect of running our homes and businesses on sun power with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We'd like to thank Oric for generously underwriting this program. We're pleased to have with us three entrepreneurs who founded companies that finance and install solar systems on residential rooftops and a banker who funds the industry. Ed Fenster is co-founder and co-CEO of Sunrun. Danny Kennedy is president and founder of Sungevity. Lyndon Rive is co-founder and CEO of Solar City, and Marco Krapels is executive vice president of Rabobank, which finances solar industry, including Sungevity and Solar City. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Ed Fenster, let's begin with you. Mm-hmm. Um, after 30 years of development, lots of growth, solar still only accounts for about half a percent of all the electricity supply in the United States. So while there's been lots of stories about solar this, solar here, it's still only half a percent. So put solar in the context of the overall energy supply for the United States, and we'll get into the other yeah. guys. Sure. So, you know, uh, I think one of the reasons that we're in the business we're in is that our perspective is that, you know, one of the really interesting things about solar is there's a very small minimum efficient scale relative to other forms of energy generation. Uh, the real place that you want to put solar is on a home or on a business, uh, not in a desert um, uh, where it has to um, be transported and distributed into a load center at high cost. So it's much more competitive um, when you can put it on a home uh, because it avoids all that transmission distribution expense. A lot of so people the, would think that it's the desert's a good place because it's always sunny and hot in the desert. Right, but it turns out actually if you were to look at your PG&E bill, um, two-thirds of the cost that you pay is in getting the energy from the power plant to your home. And so by putting a solar system on your home, you're, com- you're able to compete not just with the cost of the energy itself, but its delivery. Okay. So uh, one of the reasons that solar has been scaling more slowly um, is that really its use case is on residential homes and on businesses. But the growth rate of those installations is running, you know, particularly for the, I think this is represented here, you know, 50 to 100 percent, you know, year over year. And you compound that forward, you know, the numbers get big pretty quickly. Um, and so we have only really enjoyed a competitive cost structure you know, for the last two or three years. But the but if you draw forward the growth rates that we've been experiencing in the past, I think you'll, you'll see it, you know, uh, very quickly growing to be, you know, 5 to 10 percent uh, of the of the actual load generation. Lyndon Rive, does that lead to some some hype in the industry? Some people think there's a bubble that, that solar has been been hyped. Is there hype in solar? No, no, there's, there's no bubble. Lost any solar manufacturer right now. Well, not on that. Not on that <laughs> yeah. There's no bubble. Yeah. In fact, that bubble has been burst a long time ago. Um, no, it, it's based on pure fundamentals. So you, you sell electricity. That cost of electricity is an NPV, and that determines the value of the system. So there's no bubble here. It is what is the future cost of electricity? What are you selling it for today? Can you sa- uh, save the customer money? If the answer is yes, then the economics will hold. So unless you view that retail rates will decrease in the future, then you may uh, think it's a bubble. But uh, just show of hands, who thinks retail rates are going to go down? There one, we go, one, one guy. One person <laughs> out of uh, 150 in the audience, okay. So, so it's, uh, you know, if, if the last 100 years is an indication of the future, which is not always the case, then um, retail rates will go up. Danny Kennedy, uh, it always has been the case until recently that people who want to put solar on their own rooftop of their home or business have to put up tens of thousands of dollars to purchase the equipment and install it themselves. And now there's a model where people can basically rent instead of buy. So explain for us that, that basic model. So that's the key to the kind of fast growth in the residential space, which these three companies are pioneers of, the the solar lease or the power purchase agreement, which is the same as you get from the utility. They've built a coal plant in the desert. They took some debt to do that. They repay it through the revenues they earn by selling electricity to consumers. We've created finance structures that allow us to put a power plant on your roof. You get it installed for no money down. 
and it's paid off through the life of the system. So it's a pay-as-you-go electricity service contract. So these are really solar service businesses, and that's the game we're in. We're service providers of the thing we all know as electricity, which is a really great value. And it's allowed us to grow very quickly. In the last four or five years that that opportunity has existed in the U.S., we've gone from zero, they were all cash up front systems sold in the States, to now about 70% of the market share being pay-as-you-go on that basis. And, and, you know, just to the point previously about the growth curve, again, exponential curves surprise people. It may be less than 1% today, but the rate of doubling is what's important. And, you know, last year, 2012, there was a lot of hype about gas going into the grid, but actually only 50% of new additions in the country were gas. The other 50% were wind and solar. Solar's coming up from this tiny, minuscule proportion, but 1% goes to 2, goes to 4, goes to 8, to 16 very quickly. And even PG&E and the big utilities will tell you we'll be 10 or 20% of the grid within the decade. And if we have our way, we'll be more than that. And, and that's very possible. It's a bit reminiscent of the conversation with landline telephone companies a decade ago. You know, they were sitting around fairly complacent going, oh, don't worry about those cell phone things. We've got a similarly disruptive technology governed by the same semiconductor manufacturing process, actually, and we provide a better service for less so we're going to take their lunch. <laughs> we'll see what they have to say about that. Um, yeah, we're here. Marco Kraples, uh not many banks lend in this space. Why do you think that lending to solar is, is good business? Well, just uh, wanted to elaborate on uh, Lyndon's point that this is, this is really economic. Um, you know, we bank um, a lot of agricultural clients that are enormous users of electricity. And in the last 60 years, they've seen their rate go from $0.03 cents per kilowatt hour to $0.12 cents per kilowatt hour. And even if you adjust it for inflation, uh, rates are still significantly higher. So, you know, commercial clients are thinking, wait a minute, can, is there a way for me to hedge myself against future energy price increases? Because I do not want to be held hostage for the next 30 years, particularly those businesses that are family-owned. These guys, they want to, you know, put their business on a sustainable future. And that's what solar does. I mean, it's been a great business because we, we financed uh, either uh, through Linden and, uh, and Danny's company, uh, soon uh, probably Ed's as well. But, um, you know, we also finance directly our clients that, uh, that are acquiring solar. And what these guys are basically doing is they're owning solar as a future hedge against energy price increases. And they're effectively fixing their energy costs for the life of the system, which is about 30 years. It makes perfect business sense, and that's why we've seen uh, virtually zero default rates. And a lot of your clients are Republican, conservative, right? They're yeah, we bank agricultural clients. I mean, these guys, I tell you, one, one of these, these guys that I approached three, four years ago is a dairy farmer in Hanford, uh, California. Uh, Mike Montero, I said, Mike, you said, because I looked at his, you know, we looked at his cost statements and, you know, we looked, at, we, we were, we, we basically had his interest rates with a derivative. And then we said, wait a minute, we should be looking at his energy costs because his energy costs is significantly higher than what he was actually paying on interest to get on, on to the bank. So he said, well, can I do something about that? Because I would love to. I said, absolutely. And so this guy now has a one megawatt uh, solar farm next to his dairy farm, powering his entire dairy farm. Dairy farms are huge. Uh, users of energy because of the movement of water, and they use a lot of water. And so um, yeah, we've seen our, our clients, particularly in the, in the Valley, that are predominantly Republican, indeed, as you say, uh, being uh, huge adapters of, of, of solar uh, because it makes business sense. They always tell me, Marco, we like the green that you guys think about in San Francisco, but the kind of green that we really care about is the green that ends up in my pocket. And it turns out they can have both. Mm -hmm. Lyndon Rice, speaking of the business case, the IPO, initial public offering of SolarCity, was a, a big deal in, in 2012. You cut the price and then rallied back to that price. Uh, uh, a lot of people then since shorting the, that stock, betting that it may not, it may not continue. But tell us what you learned about the IPO of, uh, of SolarCity. Um, that the, the investment community has been beaten up quite significantly when it comes to solar. So when you mentioned the bubble, there's not the investment community uh, climate. Um, even though you can justify and show that you are not a manufacturing business, there's no appetite at all for risk in investing into the solar industry. 
So we were forced in a situation where we actually had to discount our price, uh, essentially take away that risk, and then the market price actually priced at the range that we, we put on the cover. Imagine that. But the, um, uh, we had the choice of pulling it. I think if we pulled it, it would, would have been bad um, for, for the industry, bad for us as well. Um, but by, by coming out, it would now give the investment community the opportunity to, to watch us grow and watch the market grow as essentially an energy company selling electricity. And I think that's, in, that's important because we need to transform this energy infrastructure that we have. People should not start looking at this as panel manufacturers, installers, financiers. This is selling electricity. We're transforming the way we deliver electricity. Uh, as Danny mentioned earlier, nobody looks at PG&E and go, oh, PG&E is a financing company or a power installation company. They just view it as an energy company. Um, the innovation that's occurring is just to get to the end product, and that's to sell electricity. I'd like to ask Danny and Ed about uh, the billion-dollar valuation of SolarCity. Obviously, I imagine you've noticed that. Um, is that something that uh, you think can, can pave the way for other IPOs in the solar sector, Danny? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's fantastic what they succeeded in doing, despite all the naysayers and the nabobs of negativism out there, all solar or it's bust or one company failed. Therefore, you know, it's sort of like, oh, Netscape went down. The Internet's never going to work, you know. <laughs> um, so these guys, they went out, tested the market against the odds and showed that the public has a taste for this and picked it up 50% in the first week. Fantastic. Proving what we know, which is that people want this and smart money is flowing into this like nobody's business. Buffett just put his seven billionth dollar into a solar farm. Now, you know, catch a clue, people. The Saudis are putting a hundred billion dollars into solar. There's a company that Marco and I sit on the board of called Mosaic, which offers retail investors the opportunity to buy community solar projects through debt. And, you know, we, we sell out in 24 hours and we have a project on office or, uh, on offer on the internet through crowdsourcing. That's a, an indication that the community is going long on solar. They get the dynamics. They know electricity prices go up and ours are coming down. The professional investor class may have lost their way. Ed Fenster? Uh, you know, solar is a, it's a, it's a story of almost two types of investors. Uh, there are the folks who invest in the, the companies that, you know, uh, we have here, and then there are the folks who actually invest and finance the projects that we build. And, uh, you know, the, the money uh, came first, you know, to the projects. You know, all of the major money center investment banks, commercial banks now support these projects. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, um, U.S. Bank, Rabobank, Citibank. You know, the, it's, a, it's a, a very recognized long-term uh, good investment by people who manage risk aggressively. Uh, you know, people are investing in these project companies for 20, 25 years you know, making the bets that these companies will be around to manage these customers and collect these payments for that duration. So I think it's, it's pretty clear, you know, for the people who are thinking about it uh, and then managing for the cash flows that, uh, that this is a, uh, an asset class they want to uh, invest in. Um, SolarCity's recent success shows that, you know, people are now willing, in addition to take that risk, uh, take on uh, the, the growth dynamics that, uh, you know, our companies are experiencing, you know, potentially a little bit more on the regulatory side. Um, and, and really, you know, put more fuel on the fire uh, on an equity perspective. So I think it's just the next logical step in the industry, you know, financing itself and, uh, and demonstrating its longevity. But Marco Kraples, uh as was mentioned earlier, Linda mentioned earlier, investors have been burned on solar, that it hasn't met past expectations. So what's the downside? What's the risk here? Yeah, just, you know, I think we need to also just debunk the whole Solyndra myth. I mean, this, these, these companies are not in the technology business. They're literally installing a proven technology that's been around for 30 years that makes power, and they sell it at a lower price. And they contractually enter into arrangements for a long term to give the off-taker, whether that's a residential homeowner or an investment-grade Fortune 50 company, the opportunity to buy energy at a low rate for a long term. And that happens to be clean, which is fantastic. Now, I think we need to sort of get people to understand that this is not a technology play. This is just you're delivering energy, like Lyndon said. You know, this is an energy business, just like there are other energy businesses out there. And the default rate, I can tell you, I mean, I'll tell you right now, the default rate on our solar lending portfolio is zero. 
And so this is an investment-grade asset class like anyone else's. The only benefit for me now is that there are not enough people in this game, and there are some great banks involved. Solar Mosaic is looking to open this up eh, to uh, the general public, so every American can participate. But because there aren't that many players yet, I get an above-market return for what I consider to be an investment investment grade asset. I mean, you ask ask any of these guys, would you like more than two dozen banks to be involved in this space? Yes, of course. So, (laughs) in the past, a lot of the banks and large institutional investors have preferred large projects in the desert, the centralized model, whether it's... uh, you know, whether it's BrightSource or, or others. And, and I've had economists sit here who say rooftop solar is one of the most expensive ways to generate electricity. It doesn't scale. It's very labor intensive. Now, this might have been before some of the panel prices came down. But let's talk about the, the, the distributed versus the centralized model. Linden, Rod, you know. Yeah, I mean, so, so we actually in a situation where we, we do a lot of residential, but we also do a lot of commercial. Uh, in fact, we do large scale commercial. We just announced the 14 megawatt uh, farm in, in Hawaii. Uh, so, so we understand the cost of, of both. Uh, but when you are looking at your cost and you're looking at what you're offsetting, so when you look at the cost of utility-scale solar, you're competing against wholesale electricity. As Ed mentioned, that's one-third of the cost. When you are uh, selling DG, creating, uh, installing the solar system at the place where it needs electricity, you're competing against retail. The incremental cost increase to install it on the roof um, is nothing close to the revenue loss of selling, competing against wholesale versus retail. So um, when they look at, when the economists look at the, the pure numbers, can a solar farm generate solar electricity at a lower rate than a rooftop solar? You don't need economists to figure that out. The answer is absolutely yes. And that's the kind of the, the, uh, that Warren Buffett invested in, right? Is a large scale uh, yeah, project. Yeah, but that, that's that's un- exactly. But can a um, if you look at scale and you include transmission and distribution, which is the better cost? Then, uh, in my opinion, rooftops the better cost. But, but think, yeah, definitely. I mean, I would. I mean, Ed, I, Danny, uh, what's really important to understand is this, this retail and, and wholesale divide. And I think the reason that, you know, traditional energy bankers are just used to, we have a power company as a single customer, you know, it's in theory an investment-grade credit. That means the chance that it goes bankrupt isn't much more than 2%. You know, but actually utilities are, are barely investment-grade credits. Um, and, uh, and they're just used to not thinking about it. Uh, and then you've also got, you know, consumer lending portfolios where people lend money where people are very good at assessing consumer credit risk. And what's been the challenge about establishing our, our business over the last five years is you kind of need to draw from both disciplines. You need someone who can understand consumer credit and someone who can understand energy finance. Um, and the banks that have been faster to marry those two things together have been the first ones into the market. But there is nobody, you could not find someone who has invested in both a, a residential pool of customers and in a desert pool who wouldn't tell you that the unit economics and the fundamental underlying value generation is uh, everybody would say it's better in residential. That would be a totally non-controversial statement. But I I think at the big picture level, if I may, Mm -hmm. that's a true statement, but we're realizing that and working through how to get there from this regulated monopoly incumbent technology set we've got from basically the 19th century. I mean, you know, steam turbine technology is really old, and the deals we struck with the utilities, you know, to get us power to keep the lights on in the streets are really old contractual understandings. We're shifting to this new disruptive distributed model of energy generation and the economics of us all being maybe producers and consumers of electricity at the same time. And that takes time for the banks to get comfortable with what can you finance, which parts of that asset class will we move with, and, and working it all out. But therein lies the opportunity. There's a huge economic boom going on, which is to fill out that that transition and the ingenuity of America to apply the software and the information layer and the information science to make that all work seamlessly, like the one directional central station model has worked relatively well, except for the blackout, the Super Bowl last Sunday. Uh, you know, the, the, the fact is there's a big opportunity there for us to create new enterprises to fill up that void. 
and the financiers will flow with it because the economics tell them they should. It makes more sense to cut out all those middlemen. That's the bottom line. Utilities just stand between us and the power source. When you can have it on your own roof at your point of use with the fuel falling free from the sky, that's the best option. So let's look at this from the consumer's perspective. The typical consumer in California or another state, they want to do this. Will they save money on day one by, by putting... Uh, ed- so yes. 15 cents is about the marker. If electricity you're paying is more than 15 cents, we can probably beat that. And 13% of the U.S. population is currently paying more than 15 cents for their electricity. So we go into houses and we say, go solar you will give us no deposit and pay us a monthly lease agreement or uh, arrangement plus your old utility bill, but those two things combined will likely be less. For us, it's 80% of our customers are paying less than they did previously from month one. So they're saving with no investment. There's no return on investment because they didn't make one. They're just saving money, and that's 80% of our customers from the start. All of our customers will save money over the life of the lease. Ed Fenster? Yeah. Uh, so our average customer saves about uh, 22% on day one. And then, uh, you know, we have a 1.8% escalation on average in our contracts, and that compares to, you know, 4 to 5% historically in most of the markets in which we operate. So if you have a, you know, an at all south-facing-ish roof, you know, that doesn't, you know, you don't live in a redwood grove, you know, absolutely, you know, solar can, can save you money and it's cost-effective from the beginning. And one of the wraps on solar is then it's kind of an elitist endeavor. If you're in Mill Valley or Marin and you have your Tesla already, then solar is a nice thing to say. Um, how, how is this changing that? Is it making more accessible to different income groups uh, rather than just the, uh, the Brie and Chardonnay group? Yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the Brie and Chardonnay group is such a pain to deal with. <laughs> like, like Careful, when someone calls, <laughs> I mean, most of our, we have more customers who are Republicans than Democrats. They, they, they're more likely to live in the Central Valley than in Atherton. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it is a very middle class product now. You know, the, the utilities will walk around all these maps that show where solar was installed like eight years ago and point to like some big place in Malibu. But the reality is all the new, all the new solar is going in you know, where people really care about their power bills, which is more likely to be Fresno than it is Atherton. I mean, municipal permitting expense in Atherton is so expensive, you, you know, it, it's like too painful to operate there anyway. Um, but you're assuming that people even understand their power bills. I mean, looking at these things, it's really difficult. People understand their power bills. They're yeah. paying. They pay, yeah. they, the, they, the dollar amount, but not the kilowatt per and they, But they don't need to. That's, that's one of the advantages of our model is, is, uh, is that they don't need to understand that. They just know this is what the power bill was beforehand. This is what it is afterhand, and it's and afterwards, just and it's less. Trust you guys. Right? I never, no, believed, no, no, I never believed any of this stuff three and a half years ago. And then I uh, met Lyndon. And um, I said, well, let's put some solar on a few of our branches. And let's just see how it goes. Because I, you know, I got the pitch and it said, you're going to save X. And I said, well, let's put solar on, on six, seven of our branches. And so we can learn. And if we like it, we're going to go big. But first, we're going to be on guinea pig. And lo and behold, you know, we started checking the bills and, and it worked out. And so, you know, I think you know, the best thing to do is be on guinea pig. Uh, but it's proven. I mean, this is not rocket science. It's actually very straightforward. And, and more proof of the pudding yeah, is how. More proof of the pudding is how solar is spreading through the community. It's absolutely true that it's gone from Malibu to the Inland Empire across Los Angeles. Uh, it's being adopted by people with an income below eighty thousand, more than above eighty thousand, because it's saving them cost on their energy budget. Uh, and then they're telling their friends and neighbors about it. You know, we're all beneficiaries of a word-of-mouth business model. You know, we see solar as a social network at Sungevity. We try to feed that. But 78% of our business comes from people telling people to go get solar because, hey, you can save money. I mean, you know, the Facebook posts and the tweets and the stuff they're reporting to their friends and families about, hey, I, you know, I'm just not paying any energy bill anymore. I'm just net zero. They love that and they rave about that and that's what makes it mainstream. I mean, we've definitely gone from the early adopter, you know, brie and champagne or whatever you said. And by the way, we'd love to serve you at Sungevity if you like brie and champagne too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's gone from there to the early adopters very clearly by the numbers. And you yeah, mentioned just something... Just to make sure that there's no confusion. The middle to low uh, zip codes, the growth there is not in percentage... It's, it's more than triple the number of units than in the high-income areas. So, so it, it's, it's not the fastest-growing sector because, you know, you can, you can go from 
um, one to two units. That's a, that's 100% growth. No, no, number of units is more than triple the um, high-income areas. And those areas pay a larger percentage of the overall bill goes to energy. Right. Right. So they're disposable. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about utilities who are looking at this and saying all of a sudden their customers are becoming their competitors. That's got to be a disruptive proposition. How are utilities responding to all of us who have solar panels or considering suddenly supplying a product that they, we used to be captive to them to supply? I mean, and, utilities are, being, are, are very aggressive about it because they have never faced competition and uh, they have always just earned riskless profits. Um, you know, some examples. Um, you know, Arizona Public Service, one of the, one of the gr probably the, the, you know, the most aggressive anti-solar utility in the, in the country, actually just sent a, 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 a notice. You, you, it's unbelievable they did this to their customers that said, because people are recycling their refrigerators and installing compact fluorescent light bulbs, we need to raise your power bill. <laughs> like, the idea that they might want to reduce their costs when the revenues go down, it was like, well, our profit has to stay the same and we can't cut costs, so we must have to raise revenues because, you know, people are, are buying less power because they're installing compact fluorescent light bulbs or solar systems. Um, you no, know, no, but, but like, it's insurance. He, Lily, it's a little note that went out <laughs> that says, uh, and it was like two bucks a month or so per customer, that it's, if because of energy efficiency, because you are doing these things, we're not going to have to charge you more. <laughs> yeah. Or, for instance, you know, so SDG&E, in San, San Diego, Diego in San Diego, gas electric, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, very aggressive about its dislike for uh, distributed solar. Um, you know, made a claim that distributed solar is going to cost its ratepayers two hundred million dollars. The most recent actual third-party study showed it was a benefit of about eighty million. But but even if you were to accept their two hundred million dollar figure, at the same time they're arguing hard to build a one point six billion dollar transmission line to the desert you know, for their own solar power because they'll earn money on, uh, on the capital investment that they make, but they don't earn money on the capital investment that we make. I think so we're, we're fundamentally at odds with the utilities because uh, we're eliminating their ability to grow their business. And, and so there's, there's, a, there's definitely a little bit of coming tension coming. But, you know, okay, so, but I have solar on my roof, as a lot of people do, and they would say that I, I generate electrons in the day and then and send them into the grid and then get them back from the grid in the evening that there ought to be a cost for use of that grid, that transmission, to send those electrons in different parts of the day. That's fair, right? Well, no, because that is a cost, but there's a benefit that's being provided also. Because you install the solar system on your home, less investment in transportation and distribution is required, and rates ultimately will be lower. As I said, the last study actually that looked at both the costs and the benefits of people installing solar concluded that there is a net benefit to the system of the installation of, of solar So utilities power. should be paying customers? Danny Kennedy? At a higher level, the question's really about the utility business model and the fact that it doesn't make sense in the 21st century. They've got this Faustian deal they struck to get a regulated monopoly, have had no competition, haven't innovated much, still use the same old steam turbines they did in the 1890s. And now along come us with this disruptive modular technology made out of silicon that just produces stuff from sunlight without any boiling of water or transmission systems or any of that. And they're challenged by that. And, and I get it. And, you know, they're sort of schizophrenic, to answer your question, how are utilities responding? Some are trying to embrace it. Utilities are a, a big class of companies. NRG stands out as a company that rhetorically, at least, has said a lot of great things about distributed generation. Others are definitely fighting it tooth and nail. But it's like fighting the tide. It's like being, you know, Rupert Murdoch 10 years ago and saying, oh, we're going to continue to just to shunt media content down a one-way pipe and you're going to suck it like a fire hose as a consumer. Well, no, we don't take it like that anymore. We produce our own content. We have Twitter. We do blogs. YouTube gets more watches. Whatever the, you know, the disruption that has been availed by the technology change is coming to electricity. And utilities better, you know, catch a clue and get with the program. From our point of view, we need to work with them. And so my, my personal view is we need not to vanquish them, but to make them our friends in the sense of Abe Lincoln and get them to see their business is about serving electricity to consumers, whether it comes from up there on the roof or down the road on a community solar project or off at a wind farm in the distance. That will become their business and then they'll get into the business of transport, in my view, with electric vehicles and start taking that share of wallet, which is where their revenue and growth will come from. But that's a change to their business model. 
and it's a change to all the investors who buy utility stocks who might like that nice little dividend revenue stream. It's a, it's a disruption also for sure. a lot of people's yeah. retirement plans. But, uh, but, it's, but you know, IBM had a business in mainframe yeah. computers, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, utilities are so used to having their profits protected. I mean, you know, uh, SC, uh, Southern California Edison um, has a closed nuclear power plant that it's billing its customers a billion dollars for this year because it gets rate recovery. PG&E? Pacific Gas Electric built a nuclear power plant, true story, on the San Andreas Fault. Okay, the insurance costs for that are pretty significant. Taxpayers bear that too. There's just, there's no, there hasn't had to been any accountability or competitiveness in the utility model because they've been monopolies and that's changing. Remember, and it's a hard remember Kodak? Remember Kodak? Marco Krapos? Kodak, <laughs> yeah. You remember Kodak? Most people won't 10 years from now. I mean, <laughs> so, you, know, you don't lend to KKR. So, so, no, but listen, you know, I think the train has already left the station. You know, the train has already left the station. I mean, this is about, this is actually about power independence, right? I mean, we, the U.S. has been talking about power independence for a long time. Power independence is not, you know, going and removing mountaintops and drilling and spinning chemicals into the ground and extracting the last drop of energy in a way that we used to know how to do that, which is burn stuff. Now, you know, I think independence is giving people the technology and the tools and the economic wherewithal to be able to make their own power. And that's what is happening right now, and it's good for business. And it makes perfect business sense. And, you know, I can see 10 years from now, um, I'll be talking to my neighbor and who may or may have not gone solar, and I'm going to talk to him and say, hey, what did you pay for, for power this month? And he's going to say, I paid 24 cents per kilowatt hour. And by the way, this is entirely possible. And he's going to ask me, what did you pay? Oh, I still pay the same thing that I paid 10 years ago because that's the day that I decided to go solar. So th this is Although what Ed just said. There are escalations and even the service provider contract. But, but you know what the so price is. So, so whatever the escalation is, you know what the price is. So you know what you're paying for electricity on year 19. There's no, there's no debate there. So it's, so but it's if you own it, it's path. fixed. Okay. But if you own the solar, it's fixed. And if net metering was mentioned earlier, so if people generate more electricity than they buy from the grid, can they get actually cash back from their utility for generating more than they consume? In, in, in some utilities you can, but, but it's, it's, it's not good to design it that way. So, so most, most of the designs that, that occur in rooftop solar is roughly 80%, 60 to 80% of their customers' energy needs. Um, you, you don't want to design the whole thing. You want to leave space for energy efficiency and other, other improvements that, that you can do. But just, just one thing on the, on the utility business model that, that I think often people overlook is the utility's position right now is that there's a massive cost shift that's occurring. And, and the way they're describing it is that if you have 100 users, uh, they're all paying for the infrastructure. If half of them went over, who's going to pay for the infrastructure? So, so, so it's an easy one-liner. People go, oh, I get that, Joe, because, you know, we still have to have the infrastructure. It's taken us 10 years to get to a half a percent. Okay. Let's say we become really good, and we can do a half percent. We can do in one year what we do in 10 years. The big issue here is that solar is threatening to new utility growth. The average utility uh, grows roughly 1 to 3%. That extra growth is essentially pure profit. So that growth hides a lot of sins. So if you take away, let's just say, 2%, then what happens if the historic utility escalation rate used to be 3% or 5%, they have to now add that on top of it. So now the escalation rate can go from 5 to 7%. Now that sounds high. Although Southern California Edison just announced three years of an average of 6% increases. <laughs> But um, so, so, you, so when you reduce that little bit of growth that they need, that little bit of growth, that's the fight. That's the next 10-year fight is who gets that 1% one, one to 3% growth. Because if you take that away, then their overall cost is going to increase faster than anyone forecasts. If you're just joining us, Lyndon Rive is co-founder and CEO of SolarCity. Our other guests today at Climate One are Marco Krapels, Executive Vice President at Rabobank, Danny Kennedy, President and Founder of Sungevity, and Edward Fenster, Co-Founder and Co-CEO of Sunrun. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk uh, about jobs. The solar industry, uh, I want to know how many jobs you have in California and how many people you're hiring, you know, because a lot of people talk about 
clean tech, green collar jobs. Tell us what's happening on the ground. Danny Kennedy. This is my favorite topic. I'm on the board of the Solar Foundation in full disclosure, which does an annual census. So a head count, not a forecast or a model, but who's got employees around the country. We're now in 50 states, companies across the country employing Americans. And the total number is 120,000 as of last October. And it grew from about 105,000 in October 2011. So it's the only industry that we know of, over 100,000 employees growing by 15,000 through that very hard year, despite all the negativity around the solar space. Double-digit growth. Imagine that in America. So huge success story. But get this. This is really important. 120,000 Americans work in the solar industry. We're at less than 1% of the electricity suppliers, has been mentioned a number of times here. The coal industry, which is crashing from 50% at the start of the century to less than a third today, employs a total of 160,000 people, about 80,000 miners, a bunch of people in railroads, because 50% of freight on rail in this country is coal, and then the power plant operators. So at a third, 33%, they've got 160,000 people. At 1%, we've got 120,000 people. Any economic model suggests we'll be 10% of the Californian grid and some significant percentage of the rest of the grid before too long. So we will employ millions of Americans by those numbers. Even if we get lots of scale efficiencies and improve our own businesses, we'll still employ hundreds of thousands of more, which is the other reason solar wins, is because in this day and age, coming out of a recession, employment is a premium, and we create jobs. We are the job creation engine in America. Linda Rive, tell it, you're the public company. Tell us how many you employ and how many you're hiring. So we... Um... <clears throat> Uh, 2,600 employees today, a little over 2,600 employees. We are averaging about six people a day, uh, new hires, and, and that's not fast enough. Uh, our number one constraint is hiring good people. Okay. Ed Spencer? Uh, so, you know, we directly employ about 250 people but support a, a network of local companies that employ about 3,000. Um, and I would, you know, just to kind of crystallize Danny's point, you know, fundamentally what, 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 residential solar does is it eliminates the cost of building big expensive transition transmission lines you know like those those big transmission lines are strung by helicopter i mean it's like you know and they're expensive to build and they have to bulldoze homes to build them and and instead of spending the money bulldozing homes and on helicopters disturbing turtles yeah and disturb, <laughs> you know um, uh, instead it's just all it's all labor cost so it's it's actually a really efficient sort of transition from spending cost on metal and wires and helicopters and moving turtles to just, you know, people. And these are jobs that can't be exported to China, so they're service and in installation jobs? It's Correct. really hard to do that from China. So yeah. You need very long arms. <laughs> which, is, which is a really key point. You know, there's been a lot of weird coverage of the phenomena that is low-cost solar coming out of China and other manufacturing centers. But actually, that's a boon to us all for a couple of reasons. One is more people can adopt it here. We can offer better electricity rates for that compression in price and employ more people because three out of four people employed in the solar value chain are employed after the factory gate, doing the installation, the sales, the finance, the maintenance. Uh, and the other boon from low-cost solar we should just acknowledge is that China is now going solar. And, you know, we've all been very worried about the climate impacts of China going coal. Well... A third of all PV produced last year was reconsumed in the Chinese economy. And they're taking it up faster than we are at a rate of knots. I mean, there was zero about 10 years ago in China, and now there's more than there is in the United States after 50 years with the technology. And the U.S. slapped some tariffs on Chinese panels because of dumping. Has that had any impact, or is that just a little blip in the, cost, in the downward slope of prices? You know, the, the market is basically ruled right now by oversupply. There was about 60 gigawatts of production capacity, about 30 gigawatts of demand, so uh, a small tariff by a small consumer, basically. The United States is not a big part of the world market. Didn't change the dial. It, it's also the case that um, so most of the solar cells that go into the solar panels, which is most of the cost, um, uh, uh, in the U.S. are actually come from Taiwan and not China. And you can imagine it's a, it's an, it would be an unusually difficult assertion that the Chinese were subsidizing the Taiwanese. Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, yeah. And so most of the equipment that comes here is really, the, is really the Taiwanese equipment and so actually isn't subject to the tariff at all. Can I just yeah. say, you know, people should have choice and we provide, you know, made in America options for our customers. We also do sell Chinese product in Korean and German. Um, but, you know, we've got to A, acknowledge the good thing that's coming out of this. And the other point is that, to go back to my thing about ingenuity and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem, that low-cost tool, if you think of the PV module that way, 
is going to create all these opportunities for smart businesses doing financial engineering like Ed's and new business models like Solar City and Sungevity. And, and that's the opportunity that's unleashed. We don't criticize Apple, you know, but they're designed in California. They're not made in California. They're made in China. And they just get technology neutral, whatever cheap screen and processor and, and kit they can to bundle the components to deliver the cool service with a wonderful wrapping and a brand. And we all value that service like we do electricity. And that's what America's great at, is creating these opportunities and, and companies that really just shine at bundling these sort of commodity products into wonderful services with sex appeal like Apple. Yeah, but, but the tariffs... Just, right. just, just the, on the tariff itself, although it didn't have an effect on our, our business model, the only reason why it did not have an effect is that the uh, effect of using Taiwanese sales increased the cost by roughly 5 to, to, to $0.08 cents a watt. The cost was coming down roughly $0.10 cents a watt uh, over that, that period. So it, it washed out to actually be the cost netting out coming down roughly $0.05 cents, uh, down. But it, it, it did increase the cost because it would have gone down $0.10 cents a watt. So um, although it didn't have a direct effect on our, our businesses, it does, it does increase the cost. And anything that's increasing the cost, we need to talk uh, cents per watt. We have to reduce the cost in this entire uh, value chain. Um, you, you know, you, you take the panels, the inverters, installation, uh, uh, labor, permitting, everything. Has to, we have to take the cost out of the equation. Today, the industry still depends on a 30% tax credit. In um, 2017, that tax credit goes down to 10%. If we don't figure out a way to reduce our cost and take out everything, so these annoying little tariffs, although it's uh, it doesn't have an immediate effect today. It does have an effect. So um, my forecast is business models will consolidate. Um, the, the, the compounding uh, effect that, that occurs from uh, the creativity that's occurring right now will have to change. Uh, Ed, I'm going to throw a forecast out for you. Uh, my forecast is that special uh, financing companies will need to buy uh, 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 vertically integrated companies, so they say, one of your partners, um, and start offering a, a cost at a lower rate in order to do, do work, make it work without incentives. That's just my forecast, is uh, that the, the, the business models will consolidate over time um, so that you can survive without incentives and still provide a lower cost of, of electricity. Lyndon Wright is co-founder of C and CEO of Solar City. Our other guests today at Climate One are Marco Kraples, Executive Vice President at Rabobank, Danny Kennedy, President and Founder of Sungevity, and Edward Fenster, co-founder and co-CEO of Sunrun. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to invite your participation and put uh, an audience microphone right out here. If you're on this side of the house, we please uh, ask you to go through that door and line up over here where our producer, Jane Ann. Uh, and we invite you to uh, join us with one one-part question or comment and I will help you keep that brief um, if you need some help. And um, while we're getting that situated, um, I want to ask each of you uh, what you've done in your own home in terms of your own carbon footprint, solar, et cetera, starting with Ed. Uh, so I was the company's first customer. I, I paid $10 a watt from my system. Uh, it makes me feel better. I paid about $7. <laughs> okay. You know, market cost is probably now 4 four fifty. Um and, uh, electric car? And I, did, I do not have an electric car because I don't drive. I uh -huh. take the BART. Uh -huh. um, but I did actually. Uh, and, uh, and I actually, I have an 1886 Victorian that, like, it was half heated when I got it. It's now fully heated and the gas bill is half as much. So there's, I put a lot of effort into retrofitting, into, into making it energy efficient. Yeah. Danny Kennedy? Uh, I live in a solar home. I actually live in a co housing community with a bunch of other families. Because, you know, semi-dense urban living is actually the lowest climate impact. You know, our shared transport for kids, we grow a lot of our own food, we've got chickens, we do all that stuff. And, you know, also have all the joys of living in a wonderful city like Oakland. Um, so uh, I, I think it's a good carbon footprint solution, ride to work. Lyndon Rice? Um, has a really a, nice electric car. I have a nice electric car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Inside track on that one, yes. The, okay. uh, uh, number 34. Uh, still, still, still only number 34. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, solar on the roof, uh, done full energy efficiency upgrade, uh, and now in process of getting a storage system installed. 
Storage for your solar. Uh, yeah, correct. Okay, so you'll, right. you'll store it in the day and then use your own electricity rather than sending back to the grid, okay? Marco Kraples? Um My wife and I have a solar home, and I'm eagerly awaiting the uh, arrival of my number 434 40-kilowatt battery uh, <laughs> vehicle in about five weeks' time. And uh, one more closing comment on the, the tax credits uh, situation that, that Lyndon just mentioned. After having, as a taxpayer, which I am, having supported the American fossil fuel industry for 60 years with $600 billion, uh, having seen rates increase over the time period, I think it's actually quite ridiculous that we're talking about reducing solar tax credits only three years from now um, when we're only just getting started. I think we need to think longer term. This makes perfect sense. The industry is driving costs down. Uh, the benefits that the industry has received over the last four years have made perfect economic sense. Costs have gone down by 40, 50, 60 percent, and we need to keep this going, and we will continue this inevitable transition that we are already on. We're talking about solar power at Climate One. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. Hi, John Talbot. Uh, Thank you very much for your presentation this evening. Uh, very interesting and appreciate the banter. But there's one thing that I want to touch on. You discussed the political ramifications of the utility business model. There is, There are several different things happening, marine clean energy, uh, several other public power sorts of, of things. What would you encourage as your companies that we as community do to encourage our governments to embrace different models? What kind of models do you want us to embrace, and what sorts of things do you want us to demand of our regulators, the people we vote for? Mike, and I think the most important thing, Ed, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, the most important thing, uh, particularly because in the United States we do this on a local level, is ensuring that there is, uh, you know, prompt and speedy permitting and inspection for solar systems where you live. Whether we own them, you build them yourself, uh, it costs uh, it adds cents to the kilowatt hour the way we do permitting. It's ridiculous. Um, you cut, know, in Germany, cut the red tape. And yeah, we just uh, in Germany, there, you don't even have to pull a permit to install a solar system. So you know, that's the most difficult to do because it's local uh, and most important, you know, from our perspective. And uh, there are other things. I'll look. Yeah. Uh, Danny I Kennedy, agree with permit reform as a critical thing. It's it's a real impediment to a scale in the U.S. market. You know, we're 80 cents a watt now in paperwork, whereas we're 60 to 70 on module costs, um, just as a metric to compare it to. So that's one. You know, to the question, I think community choice aggregation and that whole movement of challenging this sort of incumbent technology regulated monopoly thing we've inherited is great. You know, we, we are in the East Bay and we just supported the exploration by the council to consider such a thing. And, uh, you know, we're, it was surprising that someone would even dare ask that that's in the electricity business. But we as consumers deserve choice. You know, that's what America's great at is a competitive market, and the electricity space isn't that. So we need to create that and get rid of the red tape. Yeah, more marine business models sounds great. You give people more choices. I'll just mention that we're doing a whole program on uh, community uh, consumer choice in electricity markets later this spring here at Climate One. You can stay tuned for that. Welcome. Let's play our next question. Great dovetail, then. Uh, you gentlemen, all of you, serve the residential market. However, 75% of the customers in California, residential and commercial, don't own a roof to put solar on. So the question is, one, would you support a community solar approach like embodied in SB 43 that's currently in the California legislature? And two, do you support uh, the idea of the CEO of Recurrent, Arnold Harris, saying we should increase the export of natural gas as a way to support uh, the development of the renewable energy. So gas is a big topic in itself, but what about renters and people who don't own a roof? Who'd like to tackle that one? Yeah, in fact, in and I just Sacramento uh, supporting it. With so, Arno. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, solar right now is, is limited to homeowners, and if we want to scale it, we need to make it available to, to renters. And but right now, the, the initial focus uh, for us personally is, is more on the, the ownership. And quickly on gas, gas is a whole big topic. We, some people say it undercuts renewables. Some, some say it helps renewable solar and wind. Uh, can I comment on that also? By the way, I do support SB43, so there, there's your answer on my part. Um, and um, in terms of gas, people have talked about it, that we need a bridge of gas to the renewable energy future. Listen, I'm sitting here with three leaders who are ready. They don't need a bridge. 
um, this, this is ready. Wind, solar, the technology is ready. The cost is plummeting, and we, we don't need a bridge to get where we need to be. Um, I'm looking forward to President Obama's remarks um, at the uh, State of the Union, but I'm going to believe that uh, this country is going to get really serious to use what we already know is absolutely ready. Amen to that. Can I just say on the community solar and the like, you know, we've got to solve for multi-tenant dwellings and renters and all these people that can't currently get these wonderful solar leases and other opportunities to benefit from solar and save money. And that's why the economic opportunity is so big. You know, we're just looking at the 40 million unit total addressable market that is residential solar. Then there's the 100 million market of units that is the rental space and the opportunity for new businesses to inhabit that, which is one reason why, not to contradict Lyndon's forecast, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have the crystal ball. But I actually think there'll be a blossoming of businesses. There'll be new jobs created. This theme I'm trying to get into your heads about ingenuity and entrepreneurship is what's needed now more than ever, and that's one legislative setting that will help that happen. We've got about 15 minutes left. Let's get through as many questions and answers as we can. Yes, sir, welcome to Climate One. Okay, I'll pick up the topic of innovation. Um, Lennon mentioned just a moment ago that he's expecting an energy storage system to go with the solar system in his house. I'm just wondering what you all expect of energy storage in the next three to five years. How will it impact your business models, and how will it or should it impact the business models of the utilities? So, so, right, so right now, the, uh, the challenge with energy storage is still very expensive. Um, with the uh, uh, evolution of uh, cell phones and laptops, the cost has come down, but still not enough. It, now with electric vehicles, it is starting to move the needle. So um, the, the cost will come down, but we, we're looking at, before it becomes a viable solution, probably about four to five years. Today, it's going to be more early adopters, testing out the concept, um, and, and building models where it's not only backup for the house, but it's a dispatch for the utility. So, so I think Danny mentioned it earlier, the utility business model needs to change from where it is today. Um, they need to be to uh, get into a point where they, they manage the grid, and that's their responsibility. So you have homes that are generating electricity. How do they facilitate the dispatch of that electricity? And combined with storage, if you give them access to that, that they can keep uh, grid stability. So, so I think 10 years from now, absolutely, it'll be a viable uh, solution. But for the next uh, five years, it's going to be in pilot mode. Um, you will see significant adoption, but not, not enough to move the needle. And, and for our businesses, how that has ramifications is we now have, you know, 20-year customer relationships with people that have solar leases with us. We can upsell and on-sell to them those services, the sort of EV charging units, the software patch that will tell their car to discharge now because I can make more money rather than charging or whatever the case may be, the energy efficiency improvements, demand management tools that the utility as service manager will start to implement. And so we'll become bundlers, kind of like you know the, the ISP provider that put the broadband into your home ended up bringing in tele telephony and uh, VoIP uh, and Voice alarm on. systems and so on. And, and if I just uh, one minute to add, I, so I, I actually just did install 40 kW of storage. I have an off-grid home in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I'm quite confident that wasn't cost-effective. <laughs> um, but uh, but what, what you do, thank you. Uh, is, you know, I don't make any money on what I do. So, but the um, but you are seeing um, uh, big utility scale storage um, programs um, for dispatch, for frequency regulation, for you know hundreds of megawatts sort of things in early planning stages um, to help manage the grid. To Linden's point, and I think that you'll start to see those over the next five years, and I think on a, on a homeowner level, maybe it is a little more than five years, but there's, there's going to be massive, really exciting innovation, I think, in, uh, in energy storage starting on a utility-scale basis you know, over the next five years. Okay, let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, Gary, Malaysian. I read that Saudi Arabia and China are going 110% towards solar. Uh, are they going photovoltaic or thermal? And how competitive are we going to be with them in five years? The symbolism of Saudi Arabia, you know, going solar so they can export coal rather than burn it is quite interesting. Who'd like to tackle, tackle that one? Danny Kennedy? Export oil. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the story of Saudis uh, is simply that they currently burn oil to get electricity, 
they worked out they're selling themselves that oil for $4 a barrel. They can do better selling that to us for $100 a barrel. And there's a bit of sand. They know that stuff. They're going to just start making solar panels and put them out in the desert and run their society that way and ultimately get to a point of energy abundance, use it for desalination, all sorts of things. Um, and likewise, China is, you know, has invested heavily with an export orientation the first decade, you know, building factories to serve California and Germany and markets that were stimulating the solar economy. But now they've made it cheap enough as a commodity product that they're consuming it in multi-gigawatt um, chunks. And will we be competitive as a manufacturer? Maybe as it relocalizes, which I think it will, as transport cost becomes a big part of the structure or as new generations of technology come through. Um, but the bigger point here is the benefit that, like, low-cost mass manufacturing of silicon chips has created. We now have microprocessing power that's so cheap we can deploy it in all sorts of other devices. So solar cells or silicon cells are a bit like silicon chips. They'll become cheap and ubiquitous through this massive volume of manufacturing still to come online. And then we'll start putting it into all sorts of applications, kind of like we now put microprocessors in phones and cars and other things that weren't ever thought of as a computer 10 or 15 years ago. The place where I think a lot of this experimentation and development will happen is in the military. If you look at the Department of Defense, one of the biggest consumers of solar and all power to solar city for the solar strong, delivering it to service people as well in their homes, is they're experimenting with you know, clothing, with tent fabric, with backpacks, with kit that is solar powering because grunts don't want to be carrying batteries for their scope and their GPS and their communications gear and all the rest of it. But, but I think it's important for the audience just to understand the, the scope of this. So solar panels is roughly 60 cents a watt. The, uh, today, if you were to buy a system, um, it's roughly, let's just say the cost is, is four, 450 a watt. You can make it free. If we don't start solving all these permanent things and other things else to reduce it, you still end up with a significant cost. So um, uh, we shouldn't be too fixated on manufacturing and the technology component. We should be fixated on the local jobs, the local uh, innovation that's occurring. Um, that's all just benefit to us. That just all accrues to, to, to us. We're talking about solar power at Climate One. If you're just joining us, you can listen to this and other Climate One podcasts in the iTunes store. Let's uh, have our next audience question. Yes. Um, hi, I'm a old-time uh, solar uh, power investor, and um, I sympathize with your IPO because uh, I think a lot of people don't understand uh, the solar power companies. And um, and uh, I remember when LDK Solar was selling for forty dollars a share, and today it's selling for a dollar sixty or something. And um, so. Um, uh, I think one thing that really needs to be done is the public really needs to be educated as to, you know, who's who's creating the solar panels. And it seems like most of the companies are still Chinese, including Canadian solar, which is Chinese. And um, and so that's one uh, category. Uh, another category is yourselves. You're the installers. And um, and then there's another category of the of the companies that uh, create very large uh, solar farms, like First Solar. And uh, SunPower and I think MEMC uh, uh, Electronics is also in that business. So I think that's that's one thing that really needs to be done is the public really needs to be educated as to what solar is is, is all about. And that's why people are so skittish because when Solar City came out, you know, I wanted to buy it. And uh, you should have. But, but I, I, but <laughs> I, I, I well, I did. I, I have 800 shares. So, uh, so there's, there's categories in different yeah. different companies, and, and again, it's going to take a while for the industry to get out from these bad episodes where people people got burned. Yeah. And so the question, the question I have though is is what do you think about companies like First Solar who are creating the new uh, solar farms with using uh, salt uh, slurry, for instance? Do you think you. that's going to be okay. something big in the United States? And it seems like it's going to be bigger. Centralized solar? If I, if I may comment on just the overall Crayton. question, where do you put your money as a banker? Um, I, I would put your money in the companies that have a direct relationship with the customer. And whether that customer is uh, a large company contracting for clean energy power uh, or a homeowner signing a lease uh, with any of these companies here, 
But the, the, the client, I mean, the company that has the end relationship with the customer is the company where you're going to make your money. And they're going to find out what the best technology is, and they're going to install the best technology, no doubt in my mind. But it's the company that has the relationship with the customer, that's the company that's going to win. Yeah. And, you and you the guys penetration think that, of that is just getting started. And you guys think the utilities are not very good at that because they haven't had it, right? Danny what do you guys in? think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I was, I, uh, my, my first job was in, was in private equity, and you know, I'm out of college, and I'm trying to build a model. Like one in the morning, we were looking at buying an energy distribution company like pg and and uh, And I'm, you know, there's a line in the model where you're supposed to fill out selling expense, and I'm tearing through their financial statements, and I can't find it, and they don't report it because they've never had to sell anything. Right? So you actually can't find selling expense. They don't, the only business in the world that doesn't report it in their financial statements. So it's, um, so no, they're not great at acquiring and, and retaining customers, but you know, that's a confidence they'll have great. to have. So, so what, 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 this is a, I was in a meeting with the executive from a utility and quote, end quote, we have five customers, the five PUC members. Yeah. We have five and a half million users, five customers. Public utility commissioners. Can I just say, this Quickly, is like, like this classic thing around industry cycles. We all get fixated on the manufacturing. You all remember DEC and Wang? No, nor, nor do I. So they, <coughs> computer companies that went away, and then there was this great Harvard Business Review article that said the computerless computer company is going to be the one that crushes it, that works out what the customer wants and delivers the customer the beautiful service of word processing at the time and then web browsing and microprocessing and all the other things that you do with computers and bundles that in a service that makes sense and maybe finances it as Dell did to innovate and become large and do all the things that we now associate with computer companies who don't manufacture diddly. The value is in the customer experience and the customer relationship. And we at Sentivity, I mean, I'm not afraid to say it, we like to think we're going to be the apple of solar. We're making this wonderful customer experience at Sanjevity.com, and you can go there and get involved in the solar, the sunshine business. What was the website? Sanjevity.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't get that, any question. You, you mean the Apple solar six months ago? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got a couple minutes left. We're going to get through this at the end. And, uh, yes, sir, welcome. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Karel uh, Sikora. I would like to thank the panel for the great presentation. Uh, I've been uh, in the utility business for over 30 years, and I was fortunate enough to start with PG&E and uh, San Francisco Steam Division. So uh, when I was driving to work, I always look at the stacks, the emission, uh, and I could tell already, uh, you know, if you have a trouble in the Putterell plant or, or Hunters Point plant. And um, so... I'm the STEAM guy, but uh, I also am for in innovation. So I was fortunate enough later on end up with NRG Energy. As you mentioned, NRG, NRG Solar is now le the leader in company in solar and big fan for solar. So do you have a question but for them? Yeah, I do. Now, as soon uh, you know, innovation goes, innovation goes uh, in the solar panels as well. Now we have a solar panel which... Um, uh, the innovation allow us to generate uh, actually superheated steam and combine the new um, you know solar system with the old steam system and uh, still have the steam turbines well now how this innovation so let's get to the, we got we got to wrap this up so if i could yeah, ask how, you to get to the question how this uh, uh, how you can compete actually with the solar panels on the roof with the solar panels which uh, uh, they be used, let's say, for the, the solar thermal, and is the who Real benefits quick. more of it? Is it like uh, your uh, company, or is it the utilities company? Big utilities. Company? Real quickly, then we're going to get to one it, last question. And it it seems it just comes down to wholesale versus retail, as we were discussing earlier. So, um, uh, uh, solar thermal is, is at wholesale versus uh, rooftop at retail. Thank you. We have a chance for one last question, uh, talking about solar power at Climate One. Welcome. I'm uh, John Bourne. I run a residential marketing company called Bright Current, and we're at brightcurrent.com. Um, <laughs> and I work with all the guys except for Marco at Rabobank, but I thought I liked his analogy on the uh, um, uh, Kodak? like No, guinea pig. <laughs> Feeling like a guinea pig. And my question for you is simple. Uh, how do you explain how 80% of the customers that get quotes for the zero down, have savings day one, but only 12% sign a contract. 
That's a very good question. Um, yeah, so I, I'd say the biggest challenge that we face right now is that, is, is that it is a 20-year commitment. So although you think you're on a month-to-month commitment with the utility, uh, the fact that you don't have another choice, it's actually a lifetime commitment, um, at least for that house. So that, that's something that has to occur over time. The, we have to prove that you can make it work, but I, I think the 20-year commitment is the, the biggest, biggest obstacle that, that, that we face. And it's also what we went through with cell phones and signing up for contracts. There was the shock of the new and getting used to it, but that too shall pass because this makes economic sense and people will become comfortable with it and see their peers doing it, and it'll mainstream. But people don't like their people don't love their cell phone contracts either, right? But I, th- I think maybe another. I mean, if you if you were to compare the U.S. market to the German market, the actual value proposition of solar in Germany right now is 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 smaller than it is in the United States, yet close rates are much higher, customer acquisition cost is 90% lower. And a lot of that is just that they are at five times the scale, it's in the zeitgeist that you can save money. You know, people, uh, people are more likely to actually choose a contract if their neighbor has one. You know, it's just, it's a very, very early stage product now. It's like one in a thousand people has it. And uh, so it's just, we need to culturally get more comfortable with it. And I think you'll start to see the close rates increase. And we have to close it right there. Our thanks to uh, our guest today at Climate One. We've been listening to Danny Kennedy, president and founder of Sanjevity, Marco Kraples, executive vice president at Rabobank, Lyndon Rive, co-founder and CEO of SolarCity, and Edward Fenster, co-founder and co-CEO of Sunrun. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming and listening to Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you.